Deezer Originals. Hello, I'm Joy Barton, and welcome to The Edge, my brand new podcast series for Deezer Originals. Now, most of you will know me from the football pitch, and maybe occasionally from the headlines too, but I also consider myself many things a pundit, a father, a bit of a thinker. Over the past few months, I've found myself away from sport, banned from the game of love. And I've been using my time to explore something I've always been interested in, the mindset and the psychology of the game. To have the edge, as I would call it. Now to me, the idea of the edge can mean a lot of things. Being on the edge of success, the edge of failure, the edge of change. But on the edge, I feel that's where you truly find out about yourself. It's where you truly grow and prosper as an individual. And on this show, I want to explore that to speak with the people I look up to in the worlds of performance, sport, music, politics and beyond, and to find out what living on the edge really means to them. Today's guest is Dr. Kevin Dutton. Kevin is a psychologist who has a particular research interest in psychopaths. He's the author of a fascinating book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths, and I asked him on the show to discuss the relationship between psychopathy and high performance in sport. I first heard Kevin speak at the Leaders in Sport conference. I was truly fascinated when I heard his talk and as you go on to listen to this podcast, you'll start to draw parallels not only about yourself, but also about a lot of the top sportsmen that you know. During the course of the podcast, Kevin goes on to explain his test for psychopaths and how you can rate yourself on that scale to see where you're at So let's get into this On The Edge with Dr. Kevin Dutton. So it's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Kevin Dutton from the University of Oxford to The Edge podcast. Kevin, great to have you here. Great to be here, Joe. Where I met you was the Leaders in Sport conference a couple of weeks ago. You were a guest speaker there. As soon as I'd seen the programme and seen the topic of your conversation, I was like, right, this is right up my street. You know, after you've written a book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths, uh, when I seen the, the talk was going to be on psycho- psychopathy, 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 yep. I realised that a long time ago that elite level sport and, and psychopathy go hand in hand. I thought it was a trait that I'd seen in all the sportsmen that I'd admired down the years from Tiger Woods, Roger Federer, for Messi had elements of it. And I always felt that to go down a channel, whether it be business or sport, and certainly in my domain, football, and at the level that you do and and drill down into it to become an expert, you had to have elements of your personality that maybe weren't the most balanced. And listening to your talk, I instantly resonated with it. I know you did the test and we'll go on to that about how you work out whether you're a psychopath or not. And, And just to set this up, because people will be tuned into this who probably think I'm a psychopath and no doubt will... um resonate with them on on many levels but we're talking about the the better elements of psychopathy so you know we're we're aware that there is psychopath people out there that we would fit into a box the Hannibal Lecter's Adolf Hitler type figures we're not saying that these are good they're good psychopaths we're saying that they're at, at the worst end of the scale and that there is a an element of of probably everybody or a lot of people certainly out there in business, sport, but you know, in, just in life, TV, etc., etc., that have certain psychopathic tendencies which allow them to be exceptional at what they do. So, uh, to start, really, Kevin, in your book, uh, you claim that psychopathy, psychopathy, in small doses at least, 
his personality with a tan and that it can have surprise and benefits. And you think that there's a, such a good thing as a good psychopath and that good psychopaths can provide useful social benefits. Can you say something more about this? Yeah, sure. I think, I think to your listeners, Joey, I think it's... Um when most of them hear the word psychopath, they're going to be guided by what they hear in the media. So, you know, when most people, as you as you rightly said, when most people hear the word psychopath, they're instantly thinking of your your Hannibal Lecters or in real life, your you know, your Ted Bundys and your serial killers like Man- that. Manson, who's, who's gone just, today. He's yeah. just pegged it, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. Today, exactly, yeah. exactly right. Thankfully. Yeah. But whenever, when psychologists like myself talk about psychopaths, we're actually referring to a distinct subset of personalities with a specific constellation of psychological characteristics such as you've got your ruthlessness you've got your fearlessness you've got your coolness under pressure you've got your self-confidence you've got emotional detachment you've got focus charm charisma and of course them trademark deficits in conscience and empathy that, that you hear so much about now None of those traits that I've just outlined is necessarily a problem in itself. In fact, all of them dialed up at the right level and deployed within the right context can actually prove rather useful. The key there lies in context and and level. So let's start off with a little analogy. Imagine uh, those qualities that I've just outlined for you. Imagine uh, like a psychological mixing desk. Okay, and those qualities that I've just outlined are like the characteristics on that, that mixing desk of personality. Now, if you think about it, like none of those traits, as I said, is necessarily a problem in itself. It all comes down to the right level and the right combination. So if you dial all of them up to max, then you're obviously going to be in a lot of trouble. You're going to end up kind of, I don't know, getting 30 years inside for killing someone or whatever. Serial killer. Exactly, like... <laughs> exactly right. And I've met a few of them. <laughs> but the key is to get them in the right level and in the right combinations. And that is when things start to get very interesting. So that is where, if you have them in the right level, in the right context, uh, with the right intentions, that is when it can predispose you to success. I'll give an example. I was going to say, yeah, yeah can I you mean, give us an example? I'll give an example. So uh, imagine you've got the psychological skill set to be a top surgeon, for example, but that you lack the ability to emotionally disengage from the person that you're operating on. Well, you're not going to make it as a top surgeon, no matter how clever you might be, okay? Imagine you've got the skill set to be a top lawyer but that you lack that almost um, narcissistic self-confidence to be the centre of attention in the middle of a packed courtroom. Again, it ain't going to work. Let's take business. Imagine you've got the strategic and financial smarts to be a top business person, but that you lack the ruthlessness to fire someone if they're underperforming or the coolness under pressure to ride out a storm or the, um, or the sheer balls necessary to take a calculated risk when appropriate. Now, those traits I've just outlined for you there, you've got ruthlessness, you've got fearlessness, you've got coolness under pressure, you've got self-confidence, you've got emotional detachment. They are five core characteristics of the psychopathic personality. Now, would you say they were dysfunctional? I wouldn't. Now, I can imagine also what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, I can see exactly how that might translate into sport. Think about it. Ruthlessness, fearlessness, coolness under pressure, self-confidence, focus, exactly what you need to be a top sports star, no matter what kind of sport you're talking about. So I always use use an example of Roger Federer, right? Now, Roger Federer, one of the most ruthless and predatory tennis players that's ever lived you know but were he to behave in everyday life like he behaves on centre court at Wimbledon he'd soon find himself in a very different kind of court right so it's all about context it's all about getting those dials on the mixing desk and having them at the right levels at the right times 
when you start getting into trouble is when the levels start going up at the wrong times. So a lot of people who I've met in, say, prisons or hospitals, you've got people whose mixing death styles, their ruthlessness style, their fearlessness style, their conscience style, their lack of empathy style, they're all turn up the max, Joe, but they're stuck there, mate. And when they're stuck there and you can't regulate between contexts, that is when things start to get dangerous. So, like I said, psychopathy is personality with a tan. But, you know, it's just like, you know, we all go on holiday. If you lie out in the sun too long, you're going to get burned, right? But if you lie out at a certain amount of time and you get a certain level of it, then you're going to look better and you're going to feel better. It's exactly the same as psychopathy. Yeah. And, and as you're talking there, I'm thinking everybody, I suppose, psych, psycho state is, is in flux. So it can be absolutely fine the levels the dials and everything's in and then you get an outside influence maybe a manager signs another player or maybe you know you start getting a bit of stick from the home fans and all of a sudden the dials start to to be in flux a little bit and and you start to worry about your place in that ecosystem and the psycho psychopathic traits that maybe were helping you be in a, a very efficient effective member of a team all of a sudden switch and help become a very disruptive and uh, a poor member of, of of the team and a poor member of society. Absolutely right. And I've seen it happen so many times, not just in sport, but in business. I've seen it happen. You're, you're very right about that. What you've got to remember is that it's all about controlling your emotion. OK, so let's take sport, for instance. So in order to be a great sports person, as you know, you need three things. You need the motivation in order to get out there and do whatever you're going to do. You need the ability to make the right decisions, often under a lot of pressure. Uh, and you also need the technological skill set in able to be able to do the actual physical manoeuvres or whatever of, of whatever sport you're talking about. Now, things like anger or great surges of emotion are great when it comes to the motivation. So if people get really angry or, or, or even really scared of consequences, they can perform feats which are brilliant. So great surges of emotion really, really impact positively at times on the motivation. Where you've got to be careful of great surges of emotion is with the other two components. Because if you get a flood of too much emotion, you might well be motivated and, and really pumped up to do the task, but it might affect the decision making and it might affect the technological aspects of your performance, okay? So, and it does that because great surges of emotion place a demand on the brain's working memory capacity. We need memory. We need a kind of reservoir of energy in the brain in order to concentrate on what we call task-relevant information. So task-relevant information is like the technical stuff of, say, football, and it's also about the kinds of decisions that you make on the pitch. If you have too much emotion... What that can sometimes do, it can take away from your ability to concentrate on the technical aspects and the decisional make making aspects. And that is where you've got to be very careful. That is where you've got to keep that under control. So you might be hyper motivated, but there are times when you can be too motivated for it and it can detract from the other components of the task. Well, I found that I found that I had to work on a principle of Fire in the belly, ice in the head. Uh, when I was younger, I was probably ga- capable of just fire everywhere, sometimes channeled. And it, when it was channeled, well, it worked. And when it wasn't, it burned down a lot of things. And I had to really focus on kind of keeping that fire burning within. But actually, I had that ice cool head to be able to make those decisions. And I know, reading a lot of stuff about the All Blacks, they work on little triggers, whether it be 
uh, stroke in their ear, you know, when something happens and they feel that they might go from, they talk about going from a a blue head to a red head. That's right. And and they'll have, whether it be thinking of a favourite memory, thinking of a family member. Uh, I had one which I used from one of their plays, which was rubbing their ear. When there was a, a situation of stress, they would rub their ear to kind of anchor them in the in the blue state so do you find there's tools for that kev a- absolutely they're, they're, these what you what you described there joe they're called grounding exercises you even get it like i know goalkeepers in the premier league who if they make a mistake they will bounce the ball a certain number of times to kick it out just to center themselves uh you see tennis players you know sometimes you might think blimey how many times they're going to bounce that ball before they serve it uh, you've got Nadal who touches his he's top got all those he's got Jim, about 50 Jimmy Connors in the old days but Kev I never knew that. that I went to Wimbledon and uh, I never knew that I watched Nadal for years and somebody said to me have you ever noticed the, the twitches he's got before and I, but no. you were going to Wimbledon Football Club you were going at the wrong ground I, I, I wish I was going to Wimbledon <laughs> Football Club uh, he hasn't been playing at Wimbledon that often so when I seen him I'm like it's one of those things that once somebody tells you about it you can never forget and then every time he he was serving I was like you've ruined the Nadal the Rafa Nadal experience because I can see all his idiosyncrasies before he serves I mean that may well is that him grounding himself no that may in Nadal's case it may well be something different Joe That, that might be just a ritual that's kind of got slightly out of control because you had Sergio, remember Sergio Garcia, the golfer, that's right. and he was yeah. really struggling. He had yeah. like twenty-seven grips and regrips. That's and- that's right, and and it's like anything. You can go to an extreme, and it, it goes it goes completely, you know, exponential. And it's it be- like obsessive compulsive disorder. That's right. Now, I mean, obsessiveness is 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 also a, 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 a component of the elite elite sport mentality. I mean, you know, in order to be the best at anything. You've got to be talented. That's the, that's the entry level for anything, right? If you're an elite sport, as you know, it's no good trying to be a Premier League footballer if you're not talented, right? Now, talent is often a dirty word these days because, you know, people like to think that everything is democratised. Oh, if you're not talented, talent. you, don't get in a, you don't get in the room. Exactly you don't right. Get in the room. It's, it's the entry level. So you've got to be and, talented. And by the way, mega talented at any sport, you, it, don't, you don't get in the room. Exactly right. Exactly right, Jay. So you need that. But it ain't enough. That's just the entry level. As you know, you need to be talented. You also need to be tough. So you need to work hard at that talent. Right? Yeah, that's physically and mentally. Absolutely right. And emotionally. Yeah. Exactly right. And well, that brings me on to the third thing. So you need to be talented. You need to be tough. But you also need to be smart. So it's no good having the talent and putting in the training which isn't tailored to get the best out of you. So you've got to be talented, you've got to be tough to be able to push yourself to the limit, but you've also got to be smart in where and when and how you push yourself to the limit. If you've got them three components, then... And you need a bit of luck on your side as well. Of you know, course, yeah. as you know, there's a great saying, you know, fortune favours the well-prepared, right? So if you've got all those three things plus a bit of luck on your side, that's when you're going to go from good to great. So we're thinking about, like, there could be some young players out there, young sportsmen, young people wanting to get better, wanting to improve the state of mind to become more mentally resilient, emotionally resilient, is the techniques and tools that they can they can practice. So for instance, I'm thinking if I'm a young player listening to this and and I wanna you, you kind of want to stretch yourself without breaking yourself. Certainly I always think back to teachers or parents or coaches that were hard on you but but they knew there was a time to put that arm around you. And is that the essence of good coaching? Is that the essence of of being a good coach, being a good manager, is is to know when and where to push the buttons. It is. And I think the main thing you need to remember there, Joe, as again, I'm sure you know, mate, is every single... The essence, every great coach or manager, be it in the military, be it in business, be it even in academia or in sport that I've ever met, has a unique ability 
to deal with the people under their charge as individuals, okay? And the, and the really good ones have an ability to make you feel you are very special and you are working for them. The bad managers are the people that, you know, treat everybody the same. It's a one-size-fits-all. I'm institutionalised is what I've realised. You know, playing football since as long as I can remember and then I go to school, I'm told where to be, what to do. I've got probably like the six weeks holidays off as a kid. Then I go into elite level sport. As soon as I leave school, I'm told again where to be, what to do. And I always thought freedom would be getting to the end of my career, having a pot of money and deciding I can do whatever I want, go wherever I want. And what I've realised through this um, sabbatical that I'm having at this moment in time is... Actually, freedom was the discipline. Freedom was turning up, getting told where to be, when to do it. I mean, you know, I'm actually now yearning for, can you please give me back a, a structure? Whereas at this moment, I could literally do whatever I want, but I'm actually, I feel as pinned down more than ever because I, I need structure, I need discipline, I need somebody setting a, a tempo, setting a structure out for me. You know, one of my favourite quotes is actually from an ex-US Navy SEAL, an American guy called Jocko Willink. Uh, you, I'm reading a lot of his stuff at the minute, listening yeah. to his podcast. He's good, isn't he? Well, Jocko Willink is great, yeah. Um, and Jocko Willink actually has a phrase. Uh, it's his mantra, which is discipline is freedom. And he's very right. I mean, actually, what you often find, it's called, it's called the paradox of choice. So it's really interesting, this. So um, there's a, there was a great study which was done a few years ago which looked at, like, people, um, they were given a load of, of, of uh, jams, you know, like jams that you put on toast and all yeah. that. And they were asked, there was about 18 different varieties. And they were asked to pick their, their favourite variety out of those 18. And when they tried to pick it, they actually picked ones that they didn't like. Because there were so many to choose from that they thought, oh, I've got to make a choice. I've got to make a choice. I don't have the time to test everyone out. So they actually made, there was too many things to choose from. Whereas if you give people a smaller variety to choose from, they make better, more informed choices. And it's called the paradox of choice, Joe. So if you think about how that pans out in, in during everyday life, if you've got all the hours in the day and you've got, you know, untold, unlimited things that you might be able to fill it with, what you end up doing is bugger all, mate. Mm. You end up doing nothing yeah, because you've got, you've got too much choice. Barack Obama only had a certain number of suits in his wardrobe. So just limits um, the choice. I think it was Barack Obama, yeah. So because it's all about when you get to that kind of level, it's the uh, same as elite sport, it's all about marginal gains, what David Brassford called marginal gains. So, you know, the slightest differences, the slightest benefit you can give yourself might well make a big difference. So what I think it was Barack Obama, what he thought was, well, you know, actually, if I have to decide what I wear every time I get up in the morning, that's taking a little bit of mental energy away from me. It does take me. a bit of energy, Yeah, exactly it, yeah? right. So he thought, okay, well, well, we'll, we'll counteract that by making it a no decision. Here's what I'm going to wear. There's no decision. So you save yourself that little bit of mental energy. Yeah. And, and you feel like you're getting ahead, don't you? You feel like I'm picking something up. I, I was just thinking there, I remember re reading or listening to... Uh, a lady who was behind the, the Iron Curtain in obviously communist Russia at the time and she said they were asking her something about like when the wall came down and they, they were open to the west and they seen everybody had all this choice and they, she, they were asking her about her childhood and did she feel like they'd been deprived of anything and she was like no we never wasted time on worrying about uh, our neighbours genes because they were the same genes that, that were state issue we never worried about you know, 
what they had because we pretty much made the best of of what we had and it, they weren't too dissimilar. There wasn't a disparity of the haves and the have-nots that we have kind of in Western culture and Western civilization at this moment in time. So there's, there's a huge argument for it. I think on that point, and, and it, it, it reflects back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, the fact that, you know, you're having a sabbatical for a year and you've been struggling a little bit. And, well, I'm banned, Kev. Yeah, it's not a sabbatical. Yeah. It's, it's, oh, no. it's not... It, All right. <laughs> it's not self-imposed. It's not yeah. me uh, expressing my own form yeah. of discipline. It's um, actually a lack of discipline it's that's good, led me to this spot. It's a good way of framing it. It's a but good, isn't it's that, all about don't you find that? Don't you find that bizarre? Like, analysing the, somebody who's earning as much as I am and is betting and placing bets over a 12-year period, kind of knowing that at some point I'm going to be core for it or trying to get away from it. Because I, the way I, I, when I thought about it, and now I'm, I'm banned, I, I'm, I'm not betting. So I'd had 15,000 sports bets. I'm a mad keen sports fan, love betting on sports. I, I love trying to predict outcomes, etc. Et it was never about the monetary value. It was the use of my knowledge to predict it was right. I'm there, I'm betting away in sport. Can't really watch sport in the end on TV unless I've got a fiver. It didn't matter the figure as long as I had the vested interest in it. And then, you know, the fact that I can now bet on football and I haven't had a football bet, it, it, I'm, I'm scratching my head going, what's going on inside? That darkness, that dark matter that lives inside, that's inner psychopath that there's no doubt uh, caged up in there somewhere. Well, I think it's what's really interesting. It all comes down to identity, Joe. OK, so going back to what we we're saying about, you know, if you get, say, people who leave sport, who leave the services, who leave business as well. You know, you often what you get are these people who really struggle when they come out of that environment that they're in. Now, a lot of the time people have thought, you know, well, it's down to the fact that these are high adrenaline professions. So you're missing the buzz, right? You're missing the kick. You're missing whatever it is that it is. We're getting out in front of 60,000 people, all that kind of stuff. You're missing that kind of thing. And they may well be. They may well be that kind of impact in there. But what seems to be a big factor in this is it all comes down to identity. So if you think about it, you've been playing football, what, since you were, I don't know, what, 10, I would imagine? As long as I can remember. As long as you Professionally, can from yeah. when I was eight, nine. There you go. So you was probably club, in, yeah. in an academy. Yeah. You, you, you went up through the ranks and then you went from the academy to the first team. And the odds on that happening are very, very slim, as we I know. know. I wish I'd had the bet on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wonder uh, how to play then. Uh, that's what I was going to say. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have been playing. But, <laughs> but um, you know, so after all that, and when that all ends, when you step away from that, you know, for for thirty odd years, you're you're getting up and you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're saying, "I'm I'm Joey Barn. I'm a footballer," or you know, or whoever, whether you're in the military or whatever. When that comes to an end, and you get out of bed that first day and you stand in front of the mirror and you say to yourself, "I'm Joey Barton." but I'm not a footballer anymore. All of a sudden, there is a huge that, yeah. void. No, you haven't had that. No, it'll be a few years yet, Joe. be a few years. But I've heard you coming back, son. But, I'm, uh, I'm going to try, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, so you stand there in the mirror and you that's think right. I'm not a footballer. I've, not had, listen, I've, had, anymore, yeah. I've had a yeah. couple of bad days, by the way. I've had, yeah. I think, four four or five days where I'm like, what is my? what am I doing on the planet? You know, yeah. I've got, uh, by the way, I've got a missus, two kids, one on the way, great family, friends around me. But you lose that purpose that, you know, I've got up every day f- since I was, well, as long as I can remember and thought, I want to play football, I'm going to be a footballer. And then I've got up and thought, I am a footballer, I'm going to play this as long as I can. And then you have the, that day where you get up and you're like, actually, you know, what, what the fuck am I doing here? Great, great quote on that is the purpose of life is a life of purpose. So one of the biggest predictors of people that are happy 
people who are resilient, people who are optimistic, is to have a purpose in life, a set purpose. It doesn't come down to money. It doesn't come down to anything. It comes down to having a set purpose in life. Well, I, I and remember you meaning, saying um, in, in your talk about uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. That's right. And one of the things that were getting people through was not what you would imagine to get people through. That's right, in the, in the concentration camp. So the people that got through were the people that, that had something to live for. So he would say, give me, Victor Frankl's quote was, give me a why to live for and I will give you any how. So if you've got a why, you'll come up with a how. So it's all about having a purpose. It's all about, you know, something, it's a goal. It's, it's, it's striving towards a goal. If you've got that, then that's going to really drive you on. I mean, I know people who do all sorts of things who, who aren't into it, you know, I mean, including professional sports people. The fact that you might be very good at the sport that you do doesn't necessarily mean that you like it. Yeah, I've met lots of them. You know, I, so have I. Yeah. I mean, I, I've met Premier League footballers who don't even watch it on the telly. Yeah. They don't like it. They, they, they don't uh, like what meet, they're doing. You'll you know? meet people in business who actually will openly say, yeah, I actually don't like my job, but I'm quite good at it. And I, earn. And I can understand that. I can understand that. But yeah. That's a temptation, especially if you've got a really, really rare and elite talent that makes you a lot of money. It's a very, very special person that turns their back on that and does something else. Yeah, so for it's, sure. It's, that's a real temptation. That's when, when you've got people that don't have that kind of elite talent, it's very difficult for them to understand that because you've got something inside you which is very rare and the human brain through evolution appreciates scarcity. You know, we, we've evolved to to really get a kick out of things that are rare. And if that very rare thing resides within you and it's your talent, like I say, it's a very, very rare person that can turn their back on that. But with rare talent comes a lot of problems. You've got to manage it. I always say to people, you know, whenever I deal with sports people or, or anybody that's in that kind of line um, who've got a rare talent, what you've got to remember is, and I'm sure this will resonate you, you know, these aren't extraordinary people. Every single person I've met is an ordinary person with an extraordinary talent. So everyone's ordinary, but the talent they've got is extraordinary. And everybody from your Roger Federer's to your Muhammad Ali, anybody that you care to mention has got, with an extraordinary talent, has got this dilemma of managing it as an ordinary person. And it ain't easy. It ain't easy. Well, you've, you've almost got that internal dialogue, haven't you? Of you've got half of your mind trying to fit in and be normal, and then the other half going, "Well, actually, to do what I need to do, I need to stand out from this crowd a little bit." And that conflict, because yeah. the podcast before this, we did Sean Dyche, and he famously stepped up in the FA Cup semi-final and took a penalty when he was not the penalty taker because somebody didn't want to take one. And when I asked him about, it, I was like, he said, "I'd already had a conversation with myself, and I'd thought." what's the consequences of missing and I had no problem with the consequences of missing where a psychopath or yeah. someone high on the scale wouldn't even enter his mind would wouldn't it? even enter his mind well there's a very interesting uh, study done on penalties which you might be interested in so let's say you've got a sudden death penalty shootout right uh, you've got two kinds of penalty so let's say it's uh, you, you've got five penalties you've got four out of four both teams score four out of four something like that you've got two penalties sudden death you've got one kind of penalty where if you score it your team goes through instantly like that you've got another kind of penalty where if you miss your team goes out right now if you look at the performance of penalty takers on them two different kinds of penalty they are radically different okay so when you've got a score of penalty that instantaneously puts your team through 92 percent of penalty takers score right if you look at where you've got to score to stop your team going out 60% of penalty takers score. 
And there's a very good reason for that. It's because the way our brains have evolved, we've evolved to appreciate the consequences of risk, of loss, far greater than we appreciate the prospects of reward. And, you know, if you think about it in evolutionary times, you know, if you're killed by a predator or something like that, that's it, mate. You know, there's no coming yeah. back from that. Whereas if you get something which is good, if you find a stash of food or whatever years and years ago, okay, that's great. But actually, you know, the... the well, we the need risk. Curve, the exactly ones who right. survived are the ones who were aware of risk. Absolutely right. Otherwise but our would, brains have, have got vestiges of that going right back from three million years ago. So this is this ancient you kind got of, it. You got it. The, like lizard brain, monkey yeah, brain, you, whatever you got it, it is. Right. Exactly right. So the brains we've got now are actually exactly the same brains pretty much we had three million years ago. So, you know, when we're actually... Some people even nearer to it. Well, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Don't know who you're talking about, but probably, mate. But um, but you know, so when you think about you know taking a taking a penalty in you know I don't know it could be anywhere, it mm. could be you know Wembley or or wherever. You know, actually, you're going right the way back three million years ago to all those ancient fear, loss, Fight reward systems. Exactly thing, right, yeah. and it's working right there in front of sixty thousand people. I, I seen a study done on this. I was I've been thinking about penalties and the, and the psychological impact of penalties for a long time, and also the fact that during penalty shootouts, it's one of the you know you. You've played 120 minutes of football usually and then everybody stands still on the halfway line and allows the legs to start filling with lactate and then they ask you to go out and perform under incredible stress without having warmed up or without having been moving round as you would in a game. So, And then people try and execute high uh, risk strategies in terms of going for corners or small areas and then obviously the fatigue and the lactate impair your uh, ability to do that. And the study was about... Um, I think it was done in Germany, weird enough, which is uh, Bit of history, the hotbed, yeah. the Bit hotbed of, of penalty-taking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was about the penalty-taker was told beforehand, the coach said, look, it's my responsibility. When you take a penalty, he told them where to shoot. And he said, look, if you miss, it's on me. If you score, great, because I've told you to shoot there. But if you miss the penalty, it's my fault, because I told so if it's bottom right or top left whatever it may be, the penalty taker was given instruction before he took the penalty and the conversion rate was disproportionate to the one where he just went up and made his own mind up because the fear of the consequences had been reduced by the fact that he knew if he missed, it was going to be the coach's fault as opposed to his fault for missing. Exactly right. Doesn't surprise me at all. What you're, what you're doing, you're taking away the responsibility of the failure. Exactly right. So that guy then thinks, OK, that's impunity. I mean, it would be probably you get that you get the the the, um, the incidence of scoring even higher if that was made public. Because of course, if all the fans knew that it was down to the coach, then you'd probably get an even bigger result. I, I, when I looked at, it, I was like, that's a completely rational way to to start to dissipate some of the anxiety around spot kicks, certainly in this country. It's a great idea. Incidentally, you, you, you may well know this, but actually when... So studies have been done about when people start getting jittery about penalties and when, when the glitches start creeping into the decision-making. And a lot of people think that it's actually... You put the ball down, you turn around, and then it's during the run-up to kick it. Actually, when you look at what a lot of people... When you interview a lot of people, it's not that. It's when they put the ball down and they turn round and they walk away from it. That is when the glitches start. It's not actually in the run-up. It's when you're thinking, when but you've it, turned your back on goal. Isn't that the same golf? See, I used to practice that. I, I remember talking through, and I won't uh, discuss it here because it's, it's too long for the podcast, but the art of penalty-taking. So you would conventionally think you've got left, right... Uh, up, down, middle. So you've got, you know, 
four quadrants of, of the goal to aim at. And I always think that that's now in the in the keeper's advantage. Firstly, psychologically, if the keeper saves it or doesn't save it, you know, if you miss a penalty, then the keeper only stands to win in that scenario. Yeah. It's, he's not expected to save it. So psychologically, he's at a huge advantage there in terms of he's got nothing to lose. You've got everything to lose yeah. as the taker. Then I always thought that, well, actually, we can flip this round because if I hit a certain area of the goal and the keeper... I also thought the top and bottom of the middle of the goal. So I turned it into a, a six-segment area. And I would play cat and mouse with the keeper in terms of... Sometimes I would say I'm going to hit it in that direction and tell him where I was going to hit it and hit it in the other direction. Sometimes I would tell him where I was going to hit it and hit it there. And it was all about the psychological effect in the keeper. Now, I didn't do this in a in a stadium environment when the pressure's on, but I think it would work better there than it would on the training ground. Because my interest was psychologically violating the keeper that I was to face because we'd have bets and you'd take five penalties after training and I explained to Andre Gray who was the penalty taker up Burnley at the time who would miss one quite nervous I was like look you've got to get back on the horse get back on the horse and this is how we're going to do it explain to him the process of taking penalties and how the middle of the goal is the biggest target you know if you aim at the middle of the goal you've got a lot of room right and a lot of room left if you get it wrong Plus, the keeper usually vacates that spot. So that's usually the one spot that he's not going to be because if he stands there and you roll in the corners, he looks foolish. So him trying to, in the bigger the game got, he was going to dive because he he had more at stake to dive and make the wonder save and get all the headlines rather than stay in the middle, especially if he had given the penalty away because he now wants to make it up. So when I explained this to Andre and then said to him, look, if he missed the penalty, I said, look, I'll tell you where to go if you miss it on me. He never missed. Never missed after that when I was there. I'd go up to him before the penalty and he'd go, where am I going? I'd tell him and he'd, 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 he'd put it in there. It it's absolutely makes perfect psychological sense. Really, really sound science behind that, Joe. I never it, knew that. was just my, no. my, my way of dealing with well, absolutely. a pressurised situation. And also, I mean, there's no, which is one of the things I always say about, you know, about psychology. So I'm a professional psychologist, so I look at high performance. But it's no good me telling someone like you, you know, this is what you should do you know, because this is what the theory says, you mm. know, that psychology completely detached from real life like that, you know, just doesn't work. You know, I mean, there's an old saying in, you know, in, in, in with, with some old, say, old fashioned academics that they say, you know, yeah, well, it, it works in practice, but does it work in theory? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like putting a cart before the horse. But but what you've got there, what you've deduced is something from the coalface. You're there. You've done it. You know, this is things which work in practice. And that kind of link between the science, which I do, and the practice, which, which is what you do, that really spawns really great insights. Now, coming back to what we were talking about right at the beginning about the role of emotion and how you can get too much emotion in sport, penalty shootouts are a great spectrum to look at that through. Because what you often find is that if, you know, obviously you've got a penalty situation, a lot of people are very anxious and some players don't want to take penalties because they just know they're going to screw it up. But some people put themselves forward rightly or wrongly. Some people don't want to really take the ball some people yeah. really don't want to play at times not all but some yeah. because of that reason for the f- what happens if I fail yeah. they want it, all applauded without the risk of the failure exactly right and, and one of the things so if you remember what we were saying right at the beginning we were saying that you know obviously sometimes if you get great emotion if you're really pumped up what that does is it puts a drain on your brain's battery and it stops you from paying attention to what we call task relevant information now, task-relevant information is where you're going to place that ball, as you were saying. And that's why 
a lot of players come unstuck because they pay attention to what the goalkeeper's doing. Mm. So the goalkeeper's doing a lot of jumping around, trying to put you off, maybe pointing left and right where he's going to go, where he thinks you're going to go. That's all task irrelevant. You know where you're going to put that ball and you're going to put it there. And so often what happens is that is a strategy from the goalkeeper. Now, the goalkeepers might well not know why they're doing that, but the science behind it is because what you're doing, people are already under a lot of stress, a lot of emotion there, and actually they're paying attention to task irrelevant information when they're looking at the goalkeeper. Mm. Yeah, fit, yeah, fit. So we were talking before about the psychological spectrum, whether you are a psychopath or not. What do you call it? The psychopath spectrum? Or what's, yeah. What's the name for well, the test? I mean, I think one of the things which, which you know, we were talking earlier, weren't we, Joe, about, you know, psych- psychopathy not being a black or white, you know, either or kind of uh, construct. So I think one of the most important things is to bear in mind that, you know, just like, as I was saying, just like height or weight or anything like that, psychopathy is on a spectrum and we've all got our place on that. So some people are going to be very high on it. Some people are going to be very low on it. Some people might be too high and they need to turn those dials down a bit. Some people might be too low and they might need to turn the dials up. But before, you know, in in order to find out, got a lovely little test. Yeah, when when I'd done it, incidentally, when I did it and you, I thought it was going to be a lot higher um, and was surprised where I was at on the test and then also realised that when I was younger and I didn't have uh, children, I was probably way further up the scale and now things in life and you mellow with age and kids and so on and so forth can um, there's alternate lot, the dials. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that actually the older you get, kind of the, 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 the lower you get on the spectrum as well. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, yeah, we're real roll, we're roll. Us, yeah. so, so basically, See if you're a psycho, yeah, exactly. So, right, if, if you're listening there at home, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read out 11 items. Uh, now, these 11 items or statement, they're all going to describe you uh, hypothetically. And what you're going to do, you're going to score it on a mobile phone or a piece of paper according to how accurately you think each of these 11 statements describe you. And there's a little scoring key, okay? So this is what you need to remember. If you completely disagree that the statement accurately describes you, give yourself zero points for that. Okay, so completely disagree, zero points. If you disagree, give yourself one point. If you agree that the statement describes you, give yourself two points. And of course, if you strongly agree, give yourself three. So you're going from zero strongly disagree to three strongly agree and one and two in between. All right, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to read these 11 statements out. And uh, the people at home or wherever, you're going to score it as I'm going along, all right? So here's the first one. I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur-of-the-moment kind of person, okay? I rarely plan ahead. I'm a spur-of-the-moment kind of person. Zero if you think that doesn't describe you at all, if you strongly disagree. One if you disagree. Two if you agree. And three if you strongly disagree. Number two. Cheating on your partner is okay, so long as you don't get caught. Whenever I do this one with students, that's always the one where people are looking over their shoulders, seeing what, they've, what they're putting next to them. So uh, be careful how you answer that one. Number three, uh, if something better comes along, it's okay to cancel a long-standing appointment. Number four, seeing an animal injured or in pain doesn't bother me in the slightest. Number five, Driving fast cars, riding roller coasters and skydiving appeal to me. Number six, it doesn't matter to me if I have to step on other people to get what I want. Seven, I'm very persuasive. I have a talent for getting other people to do what I want. 
Number eight, I'd be good in a dangerous job because I can make my mind up quickly. Number nine, I find it easy to keep it together when others are cracking under pressure. Number 10, if you're able to con someone, that's their problem. They deserve it. And number 11, last one. Most of the time when things go wrong, it's somebody else's fault, not mine. Okay, so folks, what you should have, you've got 11 numbers on a page or a screen there in front of you, all right? They should all be zeros, ones, twos, or threes. Uh, what you've got to do now is you've got to add them up uh, and you should come to a total. Now, obviously, the lowest total you can possibly have is zero. Uh, never had anyone yet, Joe, who's scored zero on this, all right? A complete and utter empath, all right? Um, I have had one or two score 33, which is the maximum. So 33 is the maximum on this. So you should have your scores at home now, folks. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read out the scoring key. And then you can now, first of all, I think what we should say is no one's diagnosing anyone here, Joe. All right. This is just a general indication of where you are on the psychopathic yeah, spectrum. So you can't go and get yourself sectioned. No, you, you, or you can't get me sectioned either. <laughs> right. OK. Right. If you scored zero to 11, that is low. You are low on the psychopathic spectrum, zero to 11, right? 12 to 17, below average. 18 to 22, average. 23 to 28, high. And 29 to 30, if you can feel the tension rising in here, kind of 29 to 33 is very high. Okay, so there's, your, there's a, just a general indication, folks, of where you might be on the psychopathic spectrum. So what kinds of people would you see, obviously, on the low scale? Well, it's funny you should mention that, Joe, because I've done a, a study a few years ago which actually looked at the most psychopathic professions in the UK and also some of the least psychopathic professions. And on the low side, now, of course, what, what happened was people done this online. So you, you have to rely on a certain number of people from each profession kind of writing in. Now, we did have over, we had a couple of million people doing this. But there are some professions where people say, well, well how come you didn't have politicians on there? How mm. come you? Well, it's because not enough done it. So obviously, if one politician wrote in and scored 33, you can't really say, well, that's, that's most. That's a generalisation. Obviously, obviously, right, mate. So, well, I, I was looking there. So I'd read the list for the ones in the low. Uh, care workers, nurses, right. therapists, craftspeople, beauticians, yep. stylists, charity workers, teachers, creative artists, doctors and accountants. Exactly right. Now, one of the interesting things about that, of course, when, when you look at the high list, you've got your CEOs, of course, no surprise there. You've got people that work in the advertising business. You've got the media, you've got lawyers. Um, now, what's really interesting in amongst that lot is also in the top five is you've got surgeons. Police officers? Police officers are there as well. Vickers? Yeah, well, they, well, that's right. Now, that did surprise me. Chefs, uh, I understand. Yeah. Civil servants, I was a bit surprised. That well, salesperson, not yeah. so much. Vickers really surprised me until I started delving into it. Okay. And, and actually, that's very interesting because actually, when you start delving into that, you find that the church is very much like any other business in terms of there's a hierarchy, there's manipulation to get to the top. There's all kinds of things you need to do. And of course, if you're in that business, if you are very persuasive, if you are very ruthless, if you've got that charm and charisma and all that kind, it's exactly the same as having that in any other business. You can get to the top. You know, obviously won't name any names, but one particular vicar who I knew. Not uh, the vicar of Dibley, was it? A few years ago. It wasn't a vicar of Dibley. (laughs) 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 Very low. She'd be very low, I think. Um, But one particular vicar, I mean, turned around to me and he said, you know, Kev, he says, I don't believe in God. I'm just good at him. 
right? And that is absolutely the kind of thing that, you know, obviously we're not saying all vicars yeah, are like yeah. this, but that exactly, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe in God, I'm just good at him. So that's exactly the kind of thing we were getting at there. Now, well, what, what struck me, mate, was there was no sportsman on, on the top. Well, that's, yeah, well, that's because, Joe, if you come back, it would have been generalisations. We didn't have enough, pe- enough, enough oh, okay. top sports people. Because obviously, or politicians, top sports, yeah. yeah, same thing. Um, so, you know, if we'd had enough of those, it wouldn't surprise me one bit. I mean, if you think about, say, politicians, for instance, you take the kind of skill set you need to be any kind of politician. You need to make tough calls under considerable pressure. You need to schmooze people you don't like, stick the knife into people you do like. Fiddly and expenses. Exactly right. <laughs> You've got to be pretty narcissistic for rump office in the first place. You've got to be very, very ruthless to get your policies through. So, so politicians, you know, absolutely no problem at all. You're going to get people who are very high on the psychopathic spectrum. Lord Dobbs, I interviewed Lord Dobbs, who was the original writer of House of Cards once, and I was asking him whether he met any a real-life Francis Urquhart, who was the original yeah. character in House of Cards. He said, no, he'd never met anyone like that. But he said it was a composite of all the people he'd met, and he also okay. had a great line. So, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, if you look at the origin of the word politics, so poly, poly is Greek meaning everything and ticks is like small blood sucking insects. So uh, if, you, if you put the two together, uh, you know, the clue's in the title, really. But, um, but going back to doctors are in, the, um, are in the lower echelons, so they're in the least 10 professions and surgeons are in, in the highest. And that, that came as a bit of a surprise yeah. to me when I first done the research. But actually, when you talk to anyone in the medical profession, it doesn't surprise them at all. I mean, when, when we were at the leaders conference for instance there was a couple of surgeons there who said yeah you know absolutely you need you know one of the things when you're doing an operation is you need to be extremely it's very similar to a penalty shootout mm-hmm. you know you need to be extremely focused well, under pressure. Well, slightly different it, consequences it, it is yeah exactly right yeah. well yeah you could go out of competition it, it can, for good it can yeah. feel like a loss yeah, but like, right. yeah, yeah I don't yeah. think it's that much yeah. of a loss no, comparatively to a surgeon getting it wrong no, well exactly right but the same the same psychological characteristics you know you've got to be absolutely focused you've got to be cool under pressure you've got to be precise all of those things you've got to shut down extraneous information and concentrate on those task relevant stimuli so exactly you know one of the things that's going through our conversation is that you know exactly the same kind of skills are important through a lot of high risk professions whether it's elite sport whether it's surgery whether it's law or whatever well that brings me on to the um in the book you talk about the success in the professions and obviously they require the seven deadly wins as you call them um number one ruthlessness charm focus, mental toughness, fearlessness, mindfulness uh, and decisiveness in, in action. The one that, that struck me really when I looked through them, and like I agree with all the others, was the fearlessness because a lot of elite level sportsmen are driven on by a fear of failure. So Fearlessness is a good one. So people often say, you know, well, it's okay saying that you need these psychopathic characteristics in order, you need to dial them dials up to be uh, more successful. So you got ruthless, you got fearless. So how do you do that? So that's so. When I wrote the first book, which was Wisdom of Psychopaths, that was like the science behind it all. Uh, and then myself and a guy who I'm sure many of your listeners will know, a guy called Andy McNabb, got together. What was his book? Bravo Two Zero. Bravo Two Zero. That's right. Yeah. Um, um, my dad and granddad used to read all that. Yeah. 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 He was. Um, he must have sold some books. Him. He's. He's. He's got a few quid. He's yeah. got. He's got a few quid as Andy. But uh, so we got together and we we wrote a book together. So him based on very much like the practical side of things. So I tested Andy. He came up to my lab and we put him through the through the laboratory tests. I'd love to have a go at that one day, mate. Yeah, come up, mate. Yeah, abs- might, might break abs- you. No, absolutely. Abs- <laughs> well, it's really funny because you know it's a bit like the old um, the old Top Gear. We have Star and a you oh, know the, the Stig and all it, that. That's yeah. right. All did lap times. Yeah, that's right. So we'll see if you can beat McNabb because McNabb no was, 
was pretty yeah, much... Uh, I, I think mean, I'm relatively that's, normal that's compared to them boys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, it would be great. So I've hooked him up to all the equipment, done all the, the gold standard tests, which look at, like, um, you know, basically, you know, where you are on the psychopathic spectrum, looking at brain function, how your brain reacts to various kinds of stimuli, uh, some of them pretty nasty, and we're looking at exactly how the brain reacts to it. He pretty much flatlined. It was extraordinary. No one had seen anything like it. Whereas most normal people's brains would be going up and down the old oscilloscope, would be going up and down like a high rise, you know, buildings and all that. His was literally completely flat. Um, no one had seen anything like it. And I, you know, basically I gave him the questionnaires, the psychometric tests, I gave him all the lab tests, the whole lot. And it was no doubt about it. He was very, very high on the psychopathic spectrum. And I put this to him, you know, I said, look, you know, and he definitely, you know, you're, and he, he, he was completely unsurprised by it. He said, well, Kev, he says, you know, a- absolutely makes sense to me. Uh, completely, you know, I completely understand where I'm coming from now. Um, and, you know, no surprise whatsoever. So after the first book, we decided that seeing that he was very high on the psychopathic spectrum, no surprise to him. We would write a book together, so I would do the science and, and he would do it from uh, from the practical stuff like that because he's a very successful businessman now. And so we wrote The Good Psychopaths Guide to Success, which was the follow-up to Wisdom of Psychopaths. And in there, we have these seven deadly wins and, and the book is about how you can turn these dials up. Now, one of the things which people say, well, how can we do it? And one, the biggest one, you're coming back to fearlessness, the biggest one is... I'll give an example. So let's say, your listeners, we all go away on holiday somewhere, right? You've got two kinds of people in the world. You go away on holiday, you go to the Maldives or wherever you want to go. You go to some hot place, Spain or whatever, right? And you get in your swimming gear, right? And you've got the swimming pool, you've got the sea, you've got two kinds of people, right? You've got people that run straight in, get it all over with, right? I call them the, the, the jumpers. And then you've got the people that take hours to get in, right? They dip their toes in, they're splashing around, right? All, oh, God, you know, you take some ages. We call them the splashers, two kinds of people. Now, a few years ago, someone done an experiment to look at actually who suffers the most pain out of these. Is it the jumpers who get it all over and done with in one go? Or is it the splashers that take hours but in little doses? Perhaps not surprisingly, you find it's the splashers that have way more pain over that time because they're aggregating it over mm. time, whereas the people that get it done just in one go, it's all over with. It's exactly the same as like you know, ripping a plaster off a cup, right, or whatever, like yeah. that. You've got people that gradually, exactly right, yeah, straight off. Actually, you experience less pain if you get it all over and done with. Now, that's very interesting, but how does that apply to real life? Well, I'll tell you. What's the first thing that you do, if you or most people do, when you've got to say, I don't know, give someone bad news, for instance, right? You've got to pick that phone up. You've got to give someone a bush, bad news. You? you beat around the bush. You procrastinate. You tidy the place up. You go to a coffee. You do up. You make other calls. You do your email. You do everything. But what you, you're splashing. You're psychologically splashing. In the end, what you've got to do, you've got to pick the phone up and give the bad news anyway. So we might as well just forget all about the splashing, pick the phone up and get it done. Because if you don't, you're aggregating all the pain of imagining what it's going to be like, and then you're going to pick the phone up, see, you're going to have the see, real I'm, pain, I'm right? like that. I'm, I'm quite black and white it's like that. I'm like, look, it's got to be done, we need to do it. Yeah. And people think it shows a lack of empathy, it shows a lack of understanding. I'm like, no, this is a decision that has been made. It's not life or death, it's just something we're going to do. It's the old Nike slogan, just do it. Now, mm. incidentally, Nike got that slogan. It, it was coined from the last words of Gary Gilmore, who was an American spree killer who was sentenced to death. And his last words were pretty much, let's just get it on and do it. Uh, so actually that forms the basis of the Nike slogan, we should go back in history, which is very, very interesting. There's another funny link, actually, oh. between psychopathy and elite sport, if you want to look at yeah. it like that. Whenever you've got something like that, you just say, right, OK, let's just do it. 
you take that thing. Let's just do it. And ask yourself this question. So anyone at home, ask yourself this question. Next time you've got to do something you don't feel like doing, simply ask yourself, since when did I need to feel like doing it in order to do it? Right? If we needed to feel like doing something before we did it, none of us would get out of bed in the morning. No one feels like getting out of bed in the morning when you first wake up, but you've got to do it. Mm. So you don't need to feel like doing something in order to do it. So what you do, you decouple the emotion from the behaviour. And that is something psychopaths are very good at. You, again, it all comes back to what we were talking about, that idea of getting rid of thinning out all that psychological fat when you're making a decision, just concentrating on the task relevance. So it's just making decisions, boom. Just boom, ask boom. yourself, exactly, ask yourself the question, since when did I need to feel like something in order to do it? Most of us wait until we feel like doing something in order to do it. If you can get into the habit of just doing stuff when you don't feel like it, your life is going to improve. So you start training right. your brain. You can start train your brain. And, and the brain is very flexible, very, very flexible. Well, I was just going to say that. Are there any good te techniques that you can use to develop good psychological traits in, in your character? Well, exactly that one. If you do that, and we've, uh, me and Andy McNabb have done this with, with people in businesses. If you do that for a period of a month is usually the baseline. You find that actually, even just by doing that simple technique and, and applying that particular process, people become very, it's hard to start with, but after a while you don't want to go so, back. So give us a good example of that in terms of like how you apply that. So somebody's listening here and they want to start today. Yeah. You know, they've listened to this and they're like, okay, how do I practically apply that to my life? What is it eating? Is it to do Yeah, with, it could be anything. It could do you be, want to lose a bit of weight? Yeah, you exactly. Well, you just beat me to it. So, so a lot of people that we, we've dealt with is, is dealing with addictions. So it's a good starting point, obviously. It, uh, yeah, <laughs> just do it. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, so, you know, basically, don't wait until you feel like it. You never, you know, if, if you want to give up drinking, no one's, very rare do people feel like I'm going to, I want to give up. Okay, so just, just make a decision. That's it. You've got to start somewhere and just make that your starting decision and go with it. If you need to give people bad news, whatever, do it. I'll give you another example. Just going back to what people always, you know, say, say to us, you know, another classic is um, we've all done it, right? You agree to do something in advance. Someone says, oh, can you do this for me two months in advance? And you, you look at the old diary and you're nothing there and you think, yeah, all right, I'll do that for you two months. Do a favour. And then when you come two months in advance down the road, it's always the wrong time, isn't it? You look Class at, classic you, me, that sounds like you, my schedule. You look, you look at the diary and you think, oh, God, it always comes at the wrong time. Why did I agree to do that? Because there was nothing in it two months' time. Okay, so if you want to stop doing that, if you want to get your diary full of fun things and not full of the shit you don't want to do, next time someone asks you, can you do this for me in two months' time, stop and say, if I was doing this tomorrow, would I say yes? Because in two months' time, it's going to be tomorrow, isn't it? Okay? Mm. So you ask yourself the question, are they paying me enough? Do I like them enough? Am I going to get enough out of this? Right? If the answer to any of them questions is no, or a number of them is no, then don't do it. See, I've got a good psychological one as well. I just say no. <laughs> yeah. Well, Seriously. exactly right. Yeah. I just I mean, say no. I mean, I get that yeah. much through. I'm just like, just say no. And then yeah. event, the stuff I think about and I want to do. Saying no is really interesting. I'll tell you why. It's hard to do. People, people that, yeah, it is. People, again, it's another thing you can learn. One of the interesting things about people that have a lot of trouble saying no is it's actually an inverted form of narcissism. And I'll tell you why that is. Because when you drill down and you say to someone, well, why do you say yes all the time? And they say, because I'm really scared that I'm going to offend someone. I'm really scared that if I say no to them, they're going to think, Oh, you know, bad of me or whatever. Actually, you know what you need to realise? Actually, most of the time, people don't give a shit about you. 
Yeah. Actually, you know, whether you say yes or no to them isn't going to make or break their lives. But people that are so frightened that actually, if I say no, these people are going to be really disappointed. Who the hell do you think you are? Yeah. It's just you saying no to someone, you know. So see, that, see, that's how I see it. I'm completely with you. And I always think to myself, it, it actually is a learned trait. No, you know, you go through people pleasing, and you think, oh, actually, I'm doing them a favour. But there's nothing more offensive than not wanting to do it, not wanting to be in the room. And also letting them down and not getting there because you cancelled because you don't want to do it. So I just say no. And then knowing that everything I turn up to do, I'm 100% in the room. Yeah, absolutely. But it's just getting me in the room is an absolute nightmare for anyone. In your book, you give the example of the red spot technique. Now, as a keen golfer and performance in golf, you, you use this. You know, Can you explain this and how the red spot technique helps you develop psychological? Yeah, so sports psychologist working with Louis Oosterhuizen um, developed a red spot technique, which was basically a red spot which he put on the thumb of, of Louis's glove. So what, just drawn on with marker? Yeah, it was ju- that's right. It was, just, it was just a red spot on the thumb of the glove with a marker. So when he was basically getting in his own way when he was putting all kinds kinds of thoughts were going through his head and rather than just trusting to his ability and, and you know just trusting the process which you've got to do getting into what's called that zone that kind it's of helping co- him with mindfulness exactly right his thoughts were going mad so the sports psychologist drew a little red circle on the thumb of his glove and just told him when you're going up to make the crucial putt or whatever just focus on that red circle and it's kind of what we were talking about right at the beginning joe one of those grounding and centering processes where by focusing on that you're almost entering into the eye of the hurricane so all the cognitive turbulence is all going on around you but you are zoning in right on the in the eye of that and what it does it shuts down again all that task irrelevant information and just makes you concentrate and be in the moment. Okay, so so what are you focusing on? If you've got the red spot on your glove, what are you focusing on? Centering yourself or are you just focusing on the red? You're basically shutting out all the noise. Which you're is, shutting out all I'm the gonna noise. I'm going to miss this. Am I going to have my stroke correct? Am I going to, you know, what all happens? Those what's doubts. the consequences, etc., etc.? All those doubts, which are, it's just like having loads. Imagine your, your brain is like a computer. It's just like having all those windows open on the desktop. I'm going to miss. What if this happens? What if that happens? All them windows are open on your brain's desktop and they are draining power from mm. it. Whereas if you shut all that down, you've got all the power, you shut all that noise down and you basically then just trust to the process. So it's like your iPhone, your iPhone, you've got a lot of applications open and you're you're using them all and then you're, hang on a minute, we're wasting battery here. Tell you what, red spot. Exactly right. Close them all down, back to... And being more efficient. What it also does, and you play a bit of golf, you'll know this, is one of the things which you do in any elite sport, golf being uppermost amongst them, is you have learnt the things that you do, the practices, they have become automatic. If you start overthinking automatic processes, the whole game, your whole oh, game starts to, yeah. starts to disintegrate. Yeah. That's right. So you have to, what it does, when you start having doubts, you start putting yourself under pressure and you start analysing the stuff which you've already learned to an automatic state, and that's when things start to start coming unstuck. Well, so, well it's the flow that you talk about. Exactly in your right. Books, just flow. Focus yeah. on the flow. Exactly right. We usually with the guests, Kev, and you'll be no different to this. We're going to go through some quick fire questions to to finish our chat, if that's all right with you. Okay. I could sit and talk to you for hours and hours and hours, mate. But we'll we'll uh, we'll no doubt get it in the neck from someone. Yeah. One of the psychopaths in, in the other room. So to start with, mate, what is your idea of happiness? 
Idea of happiness is um, I like sitting on sitting on a beach with uh, an ice cold beer, uh, looking out to sea with a good book. Perfect. What's your idea of misery? What gets you down? What gets me down? Um, hmm. I don't like. I don't like people who, who who moan a lot. I don't like people who whinge. Um, I always think that um, that if you do that, you're kind of not you're not really getting the most out of life. I think so. I think people that think of themselves as victims rather than actually taking life by the horns and getting on with it. So I don't deal too well with when I'm around people like that. So people that moan and whinge. Feel um, sorry for themselves. Exactly right. If you if you've screwed up, take it on the chin and get on with it and, 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 and put your hands up. But don't whinge and moan and blame it on other people. Which person do you admire the most and why do you admire them? Uh, which person do I admire the most? Um, I would have to say, although it pains me to say it, I have learned a lot from Andy McNabb, who's my co-author of, uh, of Good Psychopaths Guide. Um, Andy epitomises the kind of go-getting approach to life that I really uh, admire. He's done it in a number of fields. He's done it in the military. He's done it in business. He's also one of these guys that is very rare in life. You meet him, Joe. Uh, when I was, you know, pretty unknown as an author, he, I, I contacted him and I wanted to interview him for, for a radio show that I was doing. And um, he said, yes, you know, for no, you know, no payment, nothing. He just said, yeah, I'll, you know, I, I like your idea and I'll give you a break. And that was a few years ago now. And it's very rare you get people like that in life who sometimes just give you a break for no reason. And I learned a lot from that. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think I would have to say, although if he's listening to this, I'm going to, I'm going to really get it in the net for all this. I won't live it down, but I would say Andy McNabb. I think he's got, yeah, psychologically. I think there's, there's, there's a man who is resilient, optimistic, makes the most out of life. Oh, good. Uh, what is your favorite book? Obviously being an author, you can't say your own. Um, and, and, and why is it your favorite? Um, my favourite book might come as a surprise to many people. Uh, my favourite book is a children's book, actually, uh, called The Velveteen Rabbit by Marjorie Williams. And it's a beautiful... It's a, it's, you can read it in 10, 15 minutes. Um, it was written, I think, back in, 19, in the 1920s. Classic children's book. And it's about a book about love and how... Um, love is often uh, doesn't come in the shape and form that you might expect it and it's about being real um, very very powerful book I would recommend that to anyone I'm going to get that I've got to read this to my kids uh, what is your favourite film and what's so good about that film Favourite film, um, got to say Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels uh, I love it, I love the dark humour uh, Vinnie Jones ain't a bad actor, actually. He did all well, right. He did all right. Yeah, I remember um, Ben Thatcher telling me um, he was playing with with Vinnie at the time, or he they were friends, and he was telling me um, he kept coming into training and he'd have the script and all that. And he said he was getting absolutely ripped. And what are you doing with that thing? Oh, I'm going to be an actor and all that. He said, and obviously the dressing room was having a, a load of fun with it. Oh, Vinnie, what's he up to? And 
And then obviously a bit later the film comes out and the lad's like, actually, shit, he was pretty good at that. He was a, serious. He, yeah. he, he said he got absolutely caned for it for yeah. a period. Oh, yeah. You can imagine a footballer trying to be an actor. Yeah, yeah. who would have thought it? Well, who'd now it, it wouldn't be so bad, but then when men were men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, I like I like that film. I thought he was good in it. Um, I like the humour. It's a good plot as well. Um, Boris the Blade. Yeah, I thought it was very, it was a very good film. It just, uh, yeah, just appealed to my sense of humour. I think, and uh, yeah, good one, good story, good yeah, story it is. too. A good director, guy Richie back yeah, in the is. day. Yeah. Uh, your favourite song or piece of music? Why is it your favourite? Favourite song. Um, yeah, I would have to say. Um, uh, I'm going to do a name drop here because I do know the bloke that wrote this and he's a lovely fella and I've got to know him well over the years. Uh, I do like Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks. Uh, so Ray Davis is a mate. Uh, really, really nice. Another one of them guys that years ago just gave me a break out of nothing. Super, super fella. Great and, and that And that song got to be one of the top five songs ever written in the English language, I think. It was just pure, for simplicity, can't, can't whack it. What's your favourite meal? And can you cook? Uh, I can cook. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm going to get a Michelin star anytime soon, but I can cook. Uh, Favourite meal? Um, you know what? I, I like a curry. I like a curry, Joe. Go out on a Friday or a Saturday night for a curry, mate. You can't beat it. But I don't like those posh curries. Same as Sean Dice. Sean Dice was a curry and a beer. Is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't like. I don't like to put my missus. She likes. She likes his, to go to these posh Indian restaurants, and it's like all. You know, you get kind of a little bit here and a little bit there and all that. No, when I go out for a curry, Proper. I like it all, exactly, all on the plate, you know, that's it, and get stuck into it. I like that. A few that. pints of wash it down. You got it, mate. Yeah. <laughs> right, fancy dinner party, your host in the party. So you can have five ideal guests to join you around a dining table. You can pick anybody from past, present, dead or alive. Right. Uh, guests. All right. Um... I think the first one, possibly people won't know him too well. Um, the first one would be the England cricket captain from the Bodyline series back in 1930, and that would be Douglas Jardine, England's toughest cricket captain. Um, uh, Bodyline series is very well known to cricket fans, but there was a man who never compromised. There, there was what I would call a, a, a man who was very high on the psychopathic spectrum within that sporting context. He was ruthless, he was fearless. Um, he set out to do a job and he did it, and he, wasn't, he, he didn't care about the consequences. He went out there to, win, to bring the ashes back, and he did. Uh, so Douglas Jardine, big hero of mine. Um, who else would I have? Um, I'm a bit of a keen chess player, so um, be entertaining. I might have Bobby Fisher. Uh, I was going to go Kasparov there. Yeah, no, well, that would have been a good game, Fisher and Kasparov, both at their peak. Um, Fisher seems like he was definitely a psychopath. Oh, he was. He had everything going, I think. He, I, think he's, yeah, I think it was 34 on your scale. Wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, he was, he was um, absolutely. Who else would I have? Um, I'll probably have Andy McNabb. He's always good. Yeah, he's a good mate of mine. So he's alive at least. Uh, wouldn't, be too, wouldn't be too bad. Um, hmm. Got to think about this now. Um, might have Charlie Bronson, who's inside. Very interesting character. Um, is, he, is he truly interesting? That interesting? Yeah, he's uh, he's he'd, he'd be an interesting guy. Again, extremely... I love Tom Hardy's portrayal of him. Oh film. yeah, brilliant film. Yeah, yeah captured yeah. him quite well. They did. Yeah, I think he'd, absolutely brilliant artist as well. Um, so I might get I might get Charlie to do the menus. 
because uh, a brilliant artist. Um, uh, there's a man who's mentally tough, uh, so locked up in solitary for. Is he still in solitary? Few, he's still in there now, yeah. But uh, yeah, he's. Um, I thought we'd see him get married at the weekend. Yeah, so was he married at the weekend? Was I'm it this sure weekend? It was. Coronation Bonson. Street. Uh, was he it? did, yeah. yeah. He got married. At oh, the was weekend, he? Oh, well, there you go. There's the fifth guest. He can bring his missus along. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't. So I wouldn't want to separate him from his missus. Oh, so no, be- better not. Exactly right. So we'll have his missus along as well. There you go. Well, that 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 certainly be an interesting uh, dinner table, mate. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we usually fill, finish on uh, what is your favourite quote. Do you have a favourite? Favourite quote? Um, yeah, favourite quote. Let me think about that. Do you know what? I like the quote from the old man, actually. I think there's I think that's a very, very... There's a lot of truth in it. And he said... Uh, I think I might have said it at the beginning. He said, persuasion isn't about getting people to do what they don't want to do. It's about giving them a reason to do what they do want to do. And I think that is... Of all the, the psychological insights I've had in, into the science of social influence that probably condenses it down into a nutshell. It's if you want to persuade someone to do something, most important principle is to appeal to their self-interest. Don't ask them to do you a favour. No one's interested a lot of the time. Appeal to someone's self-interest. Dr Kevin Dutton, been an amazing uh, journey with you. As I said earlier, I could spend a long, long time getting into this and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast if it's successful enough to get redone again. (laughs) (laughs) Be a pleasure, Joe. It's been really great, Thank you. I really appreciate that, mate. Thank you. Thanks again to Kevin there for joining me on The Edge. I mean, what a conversation. It certainly blew my mind when I did the psychopathy test. I definitely thought I'd be in a different position on that scale than what what I came up on. But I won't reveal to you whether that was higher or lower. And anyway, I hope you enjoyed that. So let me know what you think by tweeting at UK and at Joey7Barton. And if you want to hear more from our conversation, you can find some exclusive extra bits over at Deezer.com or via the Deezer app. So I'll be back next week when I'll be joined by Wasp's Danny Cipriani. He's just announced his leave and Wasp's incidentally, but should have been in the England squad for the Six Nations in my opinion and a mega, mega talented uh, rugby union player and a very, very colourful character. Until then, from me, Joey Barton, thanks and goodbye. Originals.